Good morning, Impact. Well, I would say, how many of you would say that our journey through Luke has been maybe a little different than what you expect? Did some of you hear about the, how many of you were here for the temptation weeks? How many of you were tempted to be here but did not make it for the temptation weeks? Well, a lot of people have been telling me I got a lot out of that. That's a completely different way of seeing those temptations in that time period that Jesus went through. It's really been helpful for me to see how I can overcome temptation. Well, wait till you see what we have today. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to have you bow your heads, close your eyes, and we, we've got to give this message to the Lord. We do that every week, but it's really important because there's something that our society and our culture does and pushes real hard. We've been doing it so much, and we're so used to it, I don't even know if you noticed it's going on all the time. It went on this morning when you got up. I'm sure it was going on last night, no matter where you were or what you were doing. It's all over the place, and it's blinding. It causes us not to see things for how they truly are. It caused people in Jesus' day not to see Him for tr- who He truly was. Even though in the Old Testament, everything Jesus was going to do, everything the Messiah was said to do, He did to the letter. And yet we read the same things and the uh, Pharisees and religious leaders read the same prophecies that Jesus came to fulfill, and they got a completely different picture of what the Messiah would be and what He'd look like. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to see your life transformed, we've got to get this right, don't we? And so today we're going to kind of expose where we can take a left-hand turn, and hopefully we'll all take a right-hand turn, and that's not a Republican-Democrat thing, but hopefully we'll just take a right-hand turn and get on the right track and become powerful, mighty followers of Christ. So bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's give this to God. Father, please speak to us through your word, Lord, and God, help us to see things for what they really are. We have so many things in society. We see them the way that we want to see them, Lord. Today we're celebrating, or, or this week anyway, we'll be celebrating, get ready to celebrate the independence of our nation, and we'll shoot off fireworks and we'll have parties, but we'll forget what that day's about, a lot of us. We won't even really name it right. We'll just celebrate a date. July 4th. What are you doing for July 4th, people will say. And really, it's Independence Day. It's when we fought to be independent uh, as a nation, that we could follow you, that we could have freedom of religion, all kinds of things. And so even, even in the day we're getting ready to celebrate, but in everything that we do, Lord, help us to have clarity and truth. Why do we do the things we do? If we call ourselves Christians, Christ followers, what does that mean? Why do we call ourselves that? And how does it make us different than anybody else? What does it truly mean to follow you? Today, I know, Lord, if our hearts are open, you'll speak to us and, and give us clarity on that. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you do open the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our hearts. Help us to lead more like you than when we entered this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're in Luke chapter 4, picking up at verse 14. Verses 1 through 13 took us three weeks to do. This will only take us a month. No, this will take us about... I'd say the rest of chapter 4, a couple more weeks to do that. Beginning with verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, he's been up in the wilderness, been tempted. That's over now. Now he's returning in the power of the Spirit. So he's not just returning, but he's returning full of the Holy Spirit after 40 days of fasting and being tested. And so he's been out of the limelight, been out of the public view for this long, and yet he comes back and look what it, Scripture says about him. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. Now, this is the ESV. I don't really like how it puts it. Some of the other translations will put it that he was well-known, that he was glorified, that basically he was famous at this point, and he hasn't even been around. So word is spreading about Jesus, and it's spreading in a good way. He's well-loved at this point in his ministry. Verse 15, and he, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. There it is glorified, lifted up, magnified by everyone. 
good, bad, ugly, everybody. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, his hometown, and as, he was, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on, this, on the Sabbath day. By the way, what does that mean, as was his custom? What does that mean? Did it all the time. It was a tradition. It means he went to church regularly, right? I have to tell you that because some of us, we don't get that today. We, we, we don't know. But regularly, and he stood up to read. So Jesus, as, as his first recorded sermon, maybe you didn't know this, he's already known, already been given the title of rabbi. He's already a teacher. So this isn't the first sermon he preached, but it's the first one that we have recorded. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. So he's looking through Isaiah, 50-something chapters, and he finds this place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, maybe you've read this section before, but imagine reading this and it being about you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let that sink in. I just read about the Messiah. I just read about the one who would come and set people free and give sight to the blind and do miracles and stop oppression and give spiritual healing. Today, the day you've been waiting for is fulfilled in me. Pretty bold statement. You guys can be seated. Today, gang, there's a phenomenon in Christian circles that we really have been seeing for probably about the last 10 years. And I'd say it's intensified greatly in the last five years. It's not a good thing, but it is what it is. It's reality. Maybe some of you have seen this. Uh, unless you're asleep, if you're involved in, in church somewhat regularly, you've seen this. You've noticed this across the country and even starting to hit the globe. Talking about rock star pastors. Some want to be thought of this way, Pastors are actually coming out of seminary now and trying to figure out how to position themselves sort of like celebrities to get through to people, sort of how to build a huge following more maybe for themselves than Jesus. Some of them are, are great anointed teachers, and it's just thrust upon them. They don't really want it, but our society is almost forcing it, and it's just our shallow culture because that's what our culture gang does, think about it, with just about everything, don't we? We take about just about any occupation, just about anything we do, and we want to find who are the best, and then we want to elevate them and say, this is what you need to be like. This is what you need to glorify. You name it, that's what we do. Hold them up for everybody to see. And we're not the first ones to do this. This isn't new. We're just maybe the most obnoxious with it. But they did it in Jesus' day, and gang, they did it with Jesus. And maybe you didn't know this because you see that Jesus was crucified, and you see many times they try to kill him, and, and even in this text that we're going to read now, probably by next week we'll get to this, they're going to force him out of the town so angry, I mean, one minute he's a rock star, the next minute they want to kill him, and they want to throw him off a cliff. That's how mad they get at him. But right now, his popularity is huge, and he's in the news, and he's on the lips of just about anyone within 50 miles. That's what rock stars need. Not Jesus, but that's what rock stars need. They need to be in the news. 
they need a lot of Twitter followers. They need a lot of people on their Facebook. They need some kind of news. And this is why sometimes you'll see people do incredibly embarrassing things or maybe immoral things because bad news is better than no news, right? I mean, the kiss of death, if you want to be popular, the kiss of death, if you want to be well-known, is nobody's talking about you, right? And that's why we've got stars that are famous for being famous. First time in the history of the world that I've known. You're famous just because you're famous. We don't know why you're famous. You could have absolutely no talent, Paris Hilton. You could have absolutely no talent whatsoever, Kim Kardashian. And yet you're famous for being famous, which takes this whole idea of just elevating people and putting them out there and go, see, this is what you need to shoot for, to incredible extremes. Want to be in the news. And if you're not in the news, you may do something foul even. You may make a sex tape. You may do crazy things because you just can't stand the fact that nobody's talking about you. It's image management. And now it's gotten so bad, it doesn't matter if it's good, bad, beautiful, ugly. We just need to be in the news. Well, they're talking about Jesus. How do I know? Three key words. Glorified by all. Okay, so don't miss this. When Jesus started His earthly ministry, He was what we call today a rock star. He was huge. He was famous. Before he arrived in a town, the places were already full, already long lines, already people pressing in to see him. And this is going to be the first recorded sermon that Jesus teaches. And I say before, like I said before, I say recorded because it said that it was his custom to go to the Sabbath, to church, to the temple, to the synagogue every week. So undoubtedly, since he's known as a rabbi, he's already taught. In fact, we know, if you were with me about five or six weeks ago, we know that by the age of 12, Jesus already knew more than the Pharisees, right? Because he was teaching them in Jerusalem, and they were amazed at what this 12-year-old kid was saying. So he may have been known as a rabbi or a teacher or, put that, or had that mantle put upon him, maybe even as a teenager. And maybe that's a different way than you've ever thought of Jesus starting out. So he starts out huge, and he's taught many times, and his style of teaching where he doesn't just unroll the scroll and make commentary about him, but he tends to unroll the scroll, the Torah of the Old Testament, and sort of act like he knows what he's talking about. He teaches it authoritative. He doesn't talk about God removed. He almost sometimes seems to slip to some people and talk about God like he might be God. And that confuses them a little bit, and they'll overlook it. But his teaching is extremely authoritative. It's extremely filled with ownership. Like he doesn't just know about it, but he seems to know the person of the Bible. And so, as I said before, he's hugely popular. And right now, what he's saying, don't miss this, the crowd really, really, really likes. They like what Jesus is saying. But in just a turn of a phrase, in, in a couple of verses, he's going to say one or two things and they're going to go from loving him as a rock star pastor, preacher, teacher, to wanting to kill him. And I thought of a lot of things I could say, but I can't really imagine what I could say that would make you all get up right now and kill me. I mean, you might say, that's it, we're not coming back. But how bad would it have to be for you to go buy a gun and want to do me in? And hopefully you have to go buy one. Don't bring them to church because that's a no-no. We have security here. So they're fickle just like we are in our day. They love them, they hate them, and it doesn't take much to turn this. 
You ever notice that most of us have no, most Christians, most believers, we have no trouble staying on point for Jesus, staying on point for God, as long as things are going our way. Am I right? Can somebody say amen for somebody else? Not you, just somebody else. They don't get it, but you get it. So as long as things are going our way, as long as we're loving what we hear, as long as it's a, a, a gospel that is easy, a gospel that is comfortable, and a gospel that's full of blessing, we're going to say, preach it, and we're going to show up every week, and we're going to say, how can I get more, more, more? But when somebody turns it in, and it's a little bit different than what we want to hear, or way different, then we're not coming anymore. Jesus is hugely popular. People are loving what he's saying until they don't. And things, gang, are going to go south here quickly faster than a Kim Kardashian marriage. They are just going to crash down in no time. So, all because of something Jesus says. Now, he starts off with some real crowd pleasers. Let me tell you what those are. He starts off by reminding them that they are God's chosen people. So, that's pretty cool, right? What if I said, every week at Impact, you're God's chosen people, and we are, sons and daughters of Christ, those that know Him. But not only that, you're better than all the people sitting in all the other churches. God's going to use this church. He's not going to use them. He told me that this morning because He loves you best. Some of you might be going, well, I like this place then because Pastor Rob makes me feel like we're not only good, but we're better than all the… And it's kind of what's going on here, believe it or not. And if He was that brazen about it, and it was the first time they'd heard it, it wouldn't work. But see, the Jews have been hearing this for thousands of years. You're God's chosen people. You don't really have to work hard at what you do. We're that way because we earned it. We're special. We're better than the rest. But that's not why they were chosen. In fact, anybody ever heard of a patriarch from the Old Testament called Abraham? Abram was his name, and it was changed to Abraham. God loves to change names. It's confusing, but he does it all the time. What was Paul's name before he was Paul? Saul, he does, he changes it, and Abraham was Abram, and Sarah was Sarai, and he changes it because names mean something, and Abram wasn't a real godly guy. Did you know that? Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, that's where he was from, was a completely pagan man, and yet God chose him not for any merit on his own, because if he was choosing him on his own merit, then why would he choose somebody who has nothing, no love for God, no concern for God, isn't following God at all? This is what you got to get about God. When He chooses us to follow Him, it's not based on anything we earn or do. It's not because you're more handsome or more beautiful or you do th it. It's just, He just loves you and He just says, I, I want to change you. I want to I be glorified in what I do with your reckless life and how I show people that I can mold you into my That's it. We don't earn it. Somehow the Jews lost sight of that. And they began thinking, well, He chose Abraham and Abraham's great and I'm a descendant of Abraham. We're all great. And so it's off track. So he starts off the year God's chosen people. I like that. Clap, clap. I preach it, Lord. He's, then he said, the Lord is going to send a Messiah. You know that. The Messiah is going to set you free, set captives free. Yeah, and they're getting excited because they already know what's coming. And then he's like, ta-da, drum roll, please. He's here. I'm him. And he can almost feel the cheers. But he takes a different approach. Either cheers are really good for building anticipation and, and tension and all that, or you say something really bold and then you just sit down. Like today, this morning is going to change. If you let it, it's going to change your life forever. You will not leave here today. July 30th? June 30th? Sorry. But on July 30th, something really cool is going to happen. But today, June 30th, today you will be completely transformed. You have no hope of leaving here the same. Now let me try something here. 
How many of you are waiting for a video? It's not coming. No, 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 no. It's not coming. Cut the video. See, this is so weird. That's not the cue. Video doesn't come for like an hour. So I even freaked them out. Why did I do that? Sorry, Roger. I didn't tell you I was doing that. Because that builds tension, doesn't it? I just told you you're going to be transformed. You'll never be the same. Then I just sat down and shut up. And most of you were freaked out by that because you didn't think I was capable of shutting up. But the tension in that builds are going, did he just say, I'm the Messiah? Did he just say, everything we've waiting for 2,000 years is it? And he sits down and we're all going, give me some more. Tell me the rest. And he just sat there. But then he follows it up. So, man, his popularity is about to go through the roof. And, gang, it's not like the things that he said to them weren't true. They are. The Jews are going to be set free physically. His people are going to be taken out of oppression. Other enemies or, or oppressors in their day, it was the Romans. One day, they're not, Israel's going to be set up as a kingdom, and it's not going to be that way anymore. One day, wars will cease. One day, there will be peace. One day, all of these great things they've been thinking the Messiah was going to do are going to happen, but not now. Not now. But gang, this is like telling your kids that they get to go to Carowinds. You get to go to Disneyland. And kind of sitting back and let them get all fired up about it. And as soon as they're, you know, all dressed and ready to go and go, come on, you go after you do your chores. Now let me tell you, do kids go, I can't wait to do my chores then. No, they're a little bit pushed back. I mean, they, you let me get all excited. You let me think that we're leaving right now for Disneyland. Now you throw chores in there. So what you're probably going to get is half-hearted chores, right? We tell them, then we're not going. Then you'll get a little bit more, but they probably won't put their heart in it. And I'll tell you one thing I've never seen from my kids when that happens. I've never seen them say, you know what? Forget Disneyland. Forget Carowinds. I just want to do my chores. That's, that's what I want to do. And so this dynamic is not that odd. But then to all gather, Jesus seems to go off script. His teleprompter appears to have been hijacked here. He's not saying what was supposed to be said. And gang, Jesus was fine. In fact, good and hugely popular, while his comments appeared fairly well tailored to the group at hand. Everything's great. You're saying just the right thing. Don't go off script. We love you. Great image management here, Jesus. But then he does something that's a bit of a no-brainer for aspiring leaders. He tells the truth. Why did you go and throw that in there, Jesus? Everybody knows that's a kiss of death. So let's back up just a little bit. First of all, you got to get this. Why were they so with him at the beginning? Because this is why we're with leaders sometimes. This is why we get pumped up about certain leaders. First of all, his words boosted their ego. They may have read it wrong, but his words boosted their ego. They feel better about themselves because of what he's saying. He talked about a fulfilled promise. I mean, when you're waiting for a promise, let's say your parents promised to get you a car or something, your parents promised to pay for your college, then you arrive and you find out your college is paid for, or you wake up on your birthday and there's your car, that's a fulfilled promise. But what happens if your birthday comes and there's no car, or you get to college and they say you got to go home because it's not paid for? You get upset. But Jesus says, remember the promise? You've been waiting. You've had some false starts. You've had some false messiahs. People have come. It's not been real. Today it's real. So here it looks like a fulfilled promise is coming. He gave them hope. 
And without hope, people die. They fade. They languish away. But He gave them hope. He made them feel special. Now, you may have thought I already covered that with boosting their ego, but it's a little bit different. He made them feel special, set apart, not just boosting their ego, but those who are really religious and those who really follow God and really uh, not just Jews, but obedient religious Jews, they might even be more special. Again, it's not something Jesus said, but it's something they wanted to hear. And they thought, and this is key because these people heard what they wanted to hear, like a lot of us sometimes, rather than what was actually said. They thought Jesus was going to rip into their enemies. They thought the kickoff of this, and we're the first to see it because he's preaching live right here. He just announced his candidacy, and so let's march on Rome. I mean, isn't it true that everybody likes a good old-fashioned go get them speech? I mean, if you really want to follow somebody and, and you're mad at a certain group and a leader steps up and he wants to be elected and he wants to lead, all he has to do is rip on everybody that you don't like, right? If he rips on the bad guy and gets you fired up, everybody loves that kind of a speech. That gets everybody going. You know, the one where we are affirmed and everyone else who disagrees with us is demonized, that kind of speech. We love that. Some of you are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Let me help you. Maybe the kind of speech where we tear into the Democrats and lift up the Republicans. Ooh, don't go there, Pastor Rob. Oh, I'll go there. I always go there. And then I get emails. And then I give a false email, and you send it to the wrong person. It really doesn't bother me. You know, or you go to a Republican convention, and what's the best thing you can do there? Man, it's quiet now. Careful, Pastor Rob. Well, let me show you in just a moment. Jesus was anything but careful in what he's saying here. I'm not even going to get close to what he did, but we'll see how mad you guys get. So you're a Republican convention, and the best thing you can do, I mean, if it's getting a little sleepy and people are nodding off, you guys aren't there yet. But if it gets that way, all i got to do is rip the Democrats, right? Or if you go to Democratic convention, some of you are going, Don't, oh, oh, I thought it was just Republican bashing. No, it's equal opportunity bashing. So you go to a Democratic convention, and, and they're not really with you. Just put down and ridicule the Republicans, right? And all of a sudden, the fervor in the crowd and everything just rises up. It goes, great, people love this kind of stuff. Not you all, but I've heard out there that people love this kind of stuff. And because these Jews have the wrong concept of what the Messiah came to do, they take Jesus' words at first the way they want to. In other words, blessings for us. Yeah, I mean, everybody's getting great. And death to the Romans. Yeah, I like that even better. But since Jesus was going to tell them that he was the fulfillment of a prophecy that said the Messiah would set the captives free, I can read this and understand why they took it that way. They think captives free. Well, that's us. We're the captives, and everyone else who disagrees with us, they're the oppressors. He just said it. It says it in the Torah, and he said, I'm going to set the captives free. I promise you there's no other conclusion they would have come to other than you are going to physically set us free from the Romans. They really, although it's all through the Old Testament, they really had no clue that he was going to set them free from something much worse. Sin will set you free from sin. You're a slave to sin. No, I'm not. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. You're a slave to sin until you have Jesus in your heart. You think you can walk away, but you'll come back to those sins. There's not a person sitting here right now who can't stop sinning without Christ. There's not a person sitting here who can walk away in your own strength and not return to something that you're tempted of without Christ. You will return. And if it's not that sin, it'll be another one. And he said, that's what's really killing you. Maybe not right here today, but eventually and for all eternity, that's what's killing you. I came to set you free from that. Well, now the crowd fervor on the Richter scale there just dropped. 
a whole lot, and they're not so thrilled anymore. He's not playing the old songs that they love. He's playing all new songs that they don't know. And so he's not as popular as he once was. And when he makes it real clear why he came, he finds himself, gang, in a kind of a career management crisis. And we see this all the time. Image management, gang, is huge today. When you get popular, and I said it earlier, you need to stay popular by carefully managing and crafting your image. So much so that when stars begin to take off either in the music realm or in the, even the political realm or in Hollywood and acting and all, they, they have managers. What are they managing? I mean, this isn't a manager at Walmart. This is, you're managing a person. You're managing an image. And some managers are better than others. Hannah Montana, Justin Bieber's managers, not so good lately, Maybe. mismanage your image, say the wrong thing, hang out with the wrong crowd, lean the wrong way politically, make the wrong joke, and you could be ruined. Let me give you some examples. Anybody remembers Imus in the morning? Remember him? Imus said something once, and his whole career pretty much went down the tubes, and he had to limp back over the years. Rush Limbaugh hasn't quite learned this lesson. He's ruined his career many times, but he keeps on limping back. Dan Rather learned this, right? Just torpedoed his career. Michael Richards, anybody know who that is? Who's Michael Richards? You ever watch Seinfeld? By the way, everybody watches Seinfeld, even if they lie and say they don't. You all watch it, and you all know the Kramer's the one that comes sliding into the room. And he was doing a comedy routine that next to nobody was at years after Seinfeld, and he made a joke, and, I mean, he can't buy a TV commercial now. Didn't manage his image very good. He learned this. And I read this morning that everyone wishes someone would tell this to Justin Bieber. I actually read that this morning on the way. I was trying to read about image management, and they're saying that if someone doesn't get a hold of him with how he's managing his Twitter account, that his image is just going to go down the tubes because he's just kind of verbally spewing everything that comes to mind. But again, Jesus isn't the least bit, please hear this, he's not the least bit interested in image management. He's more into transforming us into his image. There's a huge difference. He's not the least, but he does all the things wrong, all the things you should not do to, that, that could destroy your image. He's not the least bit interested in image management, but he's hugely interested. He came to transform us into his image, and it's so different. And I think deep down inside, most of us want somebody that will stop with all the PC nonsense, don't you? Don't you kind of long for that? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to have a politician that, that just told you the truth and just said, well, let's, uh, hold on. No, no, the wind's not blowing. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to have somebody who just didn't care about that just said, here's, here's the emperor's naked. Here's what's going on. I'm just going to say it, right? I mean, we all wish for that, and, and we're kind of disengaging as a, as a country and, and distrusting politics now because we feel like everybody just says what they want to say to manage their image and to get elected and then to do nothing. Come on, I'm saying what you're thinking. So you skip down to verse 16 and see how this continues to go. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So he just opens it up, reads it. Everybody would have known it. And then look at how he plays it after that. He just sits down, lets the anticipation build, and then he drops a bombshell, and I'm going to drop it on you, but I'm going to take it apart. All right? I'm not just going to give you the frog. We're going to dissect it. 
and we're going to take out all the little parts. There's four parts to this bomb. It's a cluster bomb. There's four parts to this thing that Jesus is going to take apart. And if you get these, you'll know why Jesus really came. And you'll, it'll help you to become a true follower of Him and not a follower of some fake image-controlled Jesus, some plastic Jesus. Listen, the life of Jesus evidences that people in His day, for the most part, completely misunderstood what the coming Messiah was really going to do, even though it's as plain as day in the Bible. It, it, it's just written out so a seven-year-old can, can read it and understand. They took it and morphed it into something else. And the way they reacted to the Messiah, I can honestly spend the next 52 Sundays in a row preaching about all kinds of things that they did that show they didn't understand. But I just want to give you four, four major categories to help you understand. Here's the first one. Number one, write this down. Republicans and Democrats. Thought I was going to let that one go, didn't you? Some of you are like, you probably should have. Let's camp here. Gang, it was going to include people from all different ethnic backgrounds. The kingdom of God is going to include people from all ethnic backgrounds, all political backgrounds, all economic positions. Israel, though, being a chosen nation, they should have brought humility and compassion to all the other people. They should have taken their status as people who didn't deserve it but were chosen and said, because God loved us so much, we want you, the other nations, to know how great the only true God is. But they didn't do that. Because there's two ways you can go when great favor and grace and mercy and blessing is shown to you. You can either pass it on to other people or you can start thinking you're all that and keep it for yourself. And most people go the second way. And that's the way the nation went. We must be pretty incredible for God to have noticed us and showered us with all this favor and blessing. So they were supposed to take it to the other nations. They didn't. So listen, when Jesus comes, one of the messages he has is, you guys kind of blew it. Well, you didn't kind of blew it, you blew it. So the kingdom of God is for you, but it's going to be expanded to everybody who will listen and embrace it. Now we're getting to where his message goes south. Now we're getting to the part, it's a little bit confusing, hardly worthy of death, but to them it was. You see, the Jews hated a lot of people around them. They hated the Samaritans, even though the Samaritans were at least half Jewish. They hated him. To them, that was even worse than being a Gentile. They hated the Phoenicians. They hated the Romans. They hated the Greeks. So now watch this. Remember what I said. From this moment on, Jesus is going to sort of attack that idea. Think about the stories that Jesus told throughout. We're going to see them throughout the book of Luke. If you've read the other Gospels, you see these things. The stories he told over and over again that you can't miss the message that you're not special in and of yourselves. The one who's special is the one that just loves me, that realizes their sinful position and yields to me. I'll lift them up. I'll make them special. Listen to the stories Jesus told, and you'll see why the Jews get mad. How many of you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Raise your hand, because I want you to tell it. Come up, take the mic, and oh, what happened to all that? Well, let me just remind you, the Good Samaritan... The Levite, the holy priest of Israel, he sees this man beat, beaten up and bleeding on the side of the road, and he passes him by. In fact, in the Scripture, it's kind of in this location where the Good Samaritan was, a real place. There's a passage, there's a road that kind of winds around the mountain there. And in the Greek, he didn't just pass him by. You know, it's kind of like he sees him over there, and he passes him by like this. I mean, he wants to get as far away from him, like the stench or the touch or anything. He doesn't even want to be near him. 
So not only does he not help him, he doesn't even think about helping him. He's a low life, and I'm a chosen Jew. In fact, I'm a really, really chosen Jew because I'm a high priest here, and he passes him by. And the priest comes and sees a man beaten up and bleeding, and he passes him by. But who's the hero of the compassion story here? The Samaritan, not the Jew. So we'll go through these and kind of help you understand why they wanted him dead. Wanted, dead or alive, better dead. That's the posters they put up about Jesus after this. Here's another There's a story where Jesus heals ten lepers. Remember that one? There's ten of them, and he heals them, and it's, this one's an awesome healing because sometimes he tests people's faith. Sometimes people cry out, like blind people cried out sometimes, and Jesus just went and healed them. Sometimes he did funny things that he didn't have to do, but I like it. I get a kick out of it. I can tell I'm alone, but here's here's one. One time blind men were crying out, and he could have just healed them, right? Boom, you see. But instead, he spits on the ground and starts making mud pies and puts it all over their eyes and packs it on there, then has them go wash it out, and then they can see. What's that all about? That's just weird. This time, he told the ten lepers, I'll heal you. Go and show the priest. And so they turn around and start leaving, and they're going, I've still got leprosy. Somehow we got gypped, and they keep walking. I still have leprosy. Why didn't he heal? He didn't heal them. He told them to go away. I don't know how far they went. But Scripture says as they were walking, they were healed. I don't know how bad their leprosy was, but I know leprosy in that day was, was, an, was an epidemic. It was huge. And when you had it, you had to be put in a colony. It was very contagious, and you had to shout if you were a leper so people within 300 yards would get away from you. And these guys had, were infested with it. Your limbs could fall off because you can't feel pain. You could sever a finger and not even know it. It's a hideous disease. So they walk away in their hole. So some of them were real bad and missing fingers. Their fingers are back. This is incredible healing, and guess what? Nine of them went, cool, that's great, and went on their merry way. Talk about ungrateful, right? But one of them came back, a really upstanding pharisaical Jew. No, it was a Samaritan again. The only one that came back was a Samaritan. So these stories that he's telling, they're not liking it. They're not liking the stories. Again, the hero is a Samaritan there. Mark chapter 7, you don't have to go there. There's another story. The Syrophoenician's daughter. Well, Syrophoenician is not Jewish. So he's telling the story of the Syrophoenician's daughter, and Jesus heals her and says, wow, I've not, well, he didn't say wow, I don't think, even in the Greek, but here's what he says. I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Faith is incredible. You know, I came to, the, to my own people here, and I came as a Jew, and There is not one person in the entire nation, I've been ministering for a long time here, that has faith that can touch yours. That's not a good thing to say. It's not a good thing to say. If you want to be a rock star, if you want to manage your image. Then you got the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, 33 through 43, where Jesus tells the story of a vineyard that was owned by a great king, and he had workers on that vineyard, and he sent his son, the prince, to gather up the fruit of the vineyard. First, he'd sent a lot of servants, and they beat him up, didn't treat him good, but then he sends his own son, and they kill him. This story almost sounds a little prophetic, doesn't it, about what's really going to happen? What will the king of the vineyard do to those people? And Jesus tells what he's going to do. He's going to throw the workers out, and he'll get new workers who will reap the benefits and the reward and the fruit of the vineyard. Who are the old workers? Who are the new workers? He's going to throw the Jews out is what he's saying. I'm going to bring in the Gentiles because you're not getting it. So can you see why they got a little bit upset? 
They are pumped up. Here's our Savior. Here's our Messiah. And he's saying, we don't qualify. Most of us won't make it. We don't have the right hearts. He's actually going to shift gears for that group over there. So what happened was, over and over and over again, Jesus attacked the ethnocentric view of the gospel that Israel possessed, that had somehow gotten infested into them over thousands of years. The death of ethnocentric religion occurred the second Christ Jesus was born. All right, I told you I was going to give you four things. Here's the next one. People with unbelievably weighty baggage. The Messiah came to save and to heal and to reach people with unbelievably weighty baggage. I'm talking about people with hideous pasts, people with sin so deep. I saw an interview that 99.9% of Christians absolutely hated. I liked it, but I'm weird, and you all know that. And I think some of you are going to get offended when I say that I liked it, and some of you won't agree, and that's okay. Some of you will say, send emails to Lloyd at impactchurchlive.com. Here it is, it was an interview on TV that James Dobson did with Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, I heard that growing over there. Do you guys remember that? And he went through this interview about, he was trying to understand, and, and James, I know James Dobson, he's actually a friend of our families, and I, and I know his heart, and I know what he was trying to do. And towards the end of the interview, something got through to that, I was going to say it myself, that hideous monster, which really, apart from Christ, we all are, Right? And he broke. And in that moment when he broke and James Dobson could tell something just happened, he moved in instinctively because he's got the gift of evangelism. And he looked at that man and he said, do you want to be forgiven? And let me tell you, the ratings were going up, people said that, because people were tuning in going, you have no idea what James Dobson is saying. He's not going where I think he's going, is he? Oh, yeah, he's going to tell this man, this hideous monster, that he can be forgiven. You talk about baggage, he killed I don't know how many people in a brutal, horrible way. And he prays with them live on TV. And Jeffrey Dahmer asked Jesus for forgiveness and asked him to come to his heart and lift his head. And the tears are flowing. And he has a smile. You could tell he's got joy. And then people are watching this thing disgusted, disgusted. And some of you are, as I tell you that. Maybe some of you didn't know that story. But people came to seek. I mean, Jesus came to seek and to save people with incredible baggage. Why? Because when you tell somebody with incredible baggage that there's hope and you can be saved, they tend, to, they tend to embrace it. When you tell somebody who's got it all together and it's just perfect that there's hope and they can be saved, they tend to go, why should I be saved? I'm pretty good as it is. Again, the Jews are going to get real upset. We don't want to hear that. We're conducting ourselves pretty good. Why would you even talk to those people? So he came to those who have incredible baggage. I mean, we, we don't like people with pasts. It's true. I mean, when a politician runs for office, where do the journalistic archaeologists start digging, people? Where do they start digging? In the past, right? That's who they are. They're archaeologists of, of, of finds and scandals. And I can't even remember the guy who was... I, I remember there was, a, there was an African-American running for Republican office. Well, I can't remember his name. Uh, any of you guys remember? He owned a lot of pizza places or he, What's his name? Herman Cain. Wow, I forgot. It, but Herman Cain was pretty popular for a while, wasn't he? I mean, it was soaring. I think it kind of scared people. So what'd they do? Send out the journalistic archaeologists. Start digging. If we can find enough in his past, our culture will throw him out. You got a bad past. We don't like you. You're not marketable. 
But Jesus doesn't care about your previous image before Him. He cares about transforming you into His image. It's totally different. Paul is a great example of this. Do you know what Paul referred to himself as when he was Saul in his former life? He said, I have baggage. In fact, I can beat you all in a baggage contest. Among sinners, I am, not I was, he says, I am chief. I'm the worst sinner you could possibly imagine. And most people refer to Paul as the greatest Christian follower of Christ there probably ever was. He was a guy with baggage. He killed Christians. He separated families and put fathers and mothers in jail and sold their children into slavery for following Christianity before he was saved. Jesus came to seek and to save those who had baggage. But Paul is only one example. There's many examples of great people in the Bible with CD Pass. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, don't do it right now, but it's a genealogy of Jesus, and it says Rahab was in Jesus' direct line. Rahab the what? The prostitute. She can't shake that label forever. It's never just Rahab. It's Rahab the prostitute and a Gentile, a non-Jew. Bathsheba. We don't know that much about Bathsheba. We know that she liked to take baths on rooftops, which seems strange. And we know she committed adultery, and she's in the line of Jesus. David. We know a lot of good things, but we try to shy away from the fact that he's a murderer and an adulterer, a mass murderer and an adulterer. Tamar, who disguised herself as a hooker, not for Halloween, but just for a total different reason, disguised herself as a hooker, a bad reason. Ruth, she's a good woman, but she's a Gentile. Jeconiah, just one of the kings in that line that you'll read about. You don't know much about him except the Bible says he was so evil that his line was cursed. You know, wait a minute, I thought this was the line, and not obviously the line of Jesus' father, because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But in the earthly line, he was such an evil king that his line was cursed, and you had to adopt and bring in others to continue the line, and that was legal, and you could do that. But his own line was cursed, and he wasn't able to have it continue through his own children because he was so evil. That's the line of Jesus, people with unbelievable baggage. By the way, other than Paul, where do all the examples I just gave you come from? The Old Testament. So why do the Jews feel this way about the Messiah? If you read, you can clearly see that God is a lover of sinners. How do, they, how do you read the Old Testament and miss this? You can't, unless you really want to. Which they did. But, as Al Gore would say, that was an inconvenient truth for them. The Jews were God's chosen people. That's true. But gang, chosen to do what? I said it earlier. To do what? Chosen to do what? Chosen to look good? Chosen to be on a hillside as a light? Chosen to do what? Chosen to do a job. What is it? We're going to play classroom until you answer. What were they chosen to do? What, 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 what? Evangelize. That's right, huh? They were chosen to reach the world. They had a job. Did you know as a believer you have that job? Two things you can't do in heaven, sin and evangelize. God left you here to do one of them. Which one do you think it is? It's evangelize. That's your job as a believer. And we like to look at the Jews and go, wow, they really blew it. I don't think they blew it as bad as we do today as believers in America. Are you kidding? Did you know that every single Christian, if they witnessed to one person, brought one person to Christ, we would reach everybody on planet Earth in 10 years? So what does that tell you? It tells me about 90% of Christians aren't witnessing to anybody their entire life. You have the cure for eternal cancer, and you keep it in your pocket your whole life. Won't even give it to your loved ones or friends. So we're just as bad as them. 
But their greatest mistake was in believing that they were chosen on merit. Chosen because they were great, not chosen to do a job. And that's what threw them off track. And they were name droppers. But so was Jesus. Only someone apparently forgot to tell Jesus how the name-dropping game is played. Do you know how this is played? You never drop names that would hurt your reputation. You only drop good names. In junior high, you don't want to be caught hanging out with that kid. I'm talking about that. You, you drop good names. At least that's how our fallen minds think. Have you ever been around somebody who constantly seems to work in how they know so-and-so? That's obnoxious, isn't it? It's just obnoxious to be around them. It's almost comical. You just wait for it. Here it comes. They're going to drop a name. Name droppers. That's what the Jews like to do. They like to drop one name above all others. What is it? Love to drop Abraham. Almost like that was a trump card. Can live however we want. Hey, did you really do this, man? You ought to be in prison for that. Uh, Well, you should, but I'm Abraham's son. That stinks for you, but I'm covered because I'm one of the chosen. And that's what they like to do. Jesus is not a name dropper, or at least when He drops names, He doesn't drop the right ones. He loves to drop the names of sinners and to say, remember how they were? I love them. I love changing their life. So He's unpopular for that. Hurts His rock star status. Next, number three, Jesus came to seek and to save people who have current struggles. It's bad enough that He came to seek and to save those who have a seedy past, And on a rare occasion, some of us can overlook somebody with a seedy past. But we have a real hard time, don't we, when somebody has an addiction or a struggle today that that, that comes back periodically, right? Or an alcoholic. I've been sober, some will say, for 10 years. And I, 10 years? I thought you were sober for 15. Well, I fell about 10 years ago and I had that one relapse. Well, then you're out. And then we have, we all have sins. We all have things we hide, image management. But if somebody's struggling with something now, we tend to put them off for that. And yet Jesus was a lover and came to seek and to save and to, to sanctify and to help bring uh, and disciple and bring up and mold into His image those who currently struggle. And by the way, that includes everyone, doesn't it? I mean, it's not like there's a group, look, those people still struggle with sin. So do you. Anybody here conquered it? Boy, if you raise your hand, I feel sorry for you. That will be a lie, so you haven't conquered it. Now, the first... Three things that we talked about pretty much proved that Jesus came for the hurting and marginalized, the sinners and the, and, and the screw-ups. But should we conclude from that, gang, that since Jesus came to seeking to save those who are really bad past and really messed up and those who can really realize it, that maybe we should just sin more so His grace increases? No. In fact, Romans 6 builds that whole argument. Paul says, yeah, you can't out-sin God's grace. The more you sin, the more He loves you. He will chase after you. But don't you dare take that truth and sin more to increase His grace. It doesn't work the other way around. You can't force His love by sinning. And in fact, all that does is prove that you don't know Him. So if you know the extent of His grace and mercy, you would never keep trying to sin. In fact, what did He say to the woman caught in adultery? He forgave her and He said, nobody can throw rocks at you unless they haven't sinned. They're no different from you. Now get up and go and sin no more. And He didn't mean go and be perfect. If you mess up... I'll be watching you. He didn't mean that. He meant this thing that you've been caught doing, it's destroying you. I mean, you and I both know that you were caught in adultery. I'm not even going to mention that. I love you. But if you go back and keep doing that, it'll destroy you. Go and walk away from that. 
I've got a better life for you. So it's not keep on sinning because my grace will be huge if you keep on sinning. You can change. I came that you may change. Go and sin no more. But not on your own strength. We're going to try something new now in my strength. Watch this. Jesus is well aware of our sinful, fickle nature. And he wants to free us from that miserable merry-go-round of, you know, I could do better. I could do New Year's resolution. I can really white-knuckle this thing. I can behave this time. He wants to free us from that oppression to become fully devoted followers, impactors, and kingdom builders. And I know you want that. And that's the church that we say that we're building it. And we want to launch on August 25th with a different kind of church that actually changes Charlotte. It doesn't just play church. But in order to see that kind of transformation in our lives, we need to leave the shallow idea of followership that we find. And it's getting worse that we find in it with a Twitter, Facebook mentality. I mean, there's nobody who follows someone on Twitter who's really following anything except for short little 140 character pithy sayings, right? So followership has become about that deep. So we've got to change from that, that the world has today, the shallow bit, and understand what it truly means to follow Jesus. So sit back and watch this, and maybe you'll get an idea. We're so fickle as a culture, as a society, and sadly, even as believers in our country. I could probably relate, though, most to anybody else in the whole Bible, most to Peter. Maybe some of you can, too. And I'll take it even a step further. Jesus' love and mercy and grace was so deep and so wide that I believe even if Judas would have turned around and come back and said, what have I done? Jesus, forgive me, that he would have been forgiven. Maybe some of you don't agree, but why not? Why wouldn't he have been? You see, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, but also those who could truly understand that they were lost and needed a Savior. And what the Jews probably hated most of all, and we'll finish with this, is that salvation was going to change from what they had always thought was an outside thing, an external things you did. Number four is that it was going to be from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Would you bow your heads? This is what I'm talking about when I talk about the inside. Jesus came to bring relationship. He came to know you. He came that the wall between you and His Father could be broken down and you can be adopted as sons and daughters and have a relationship and get to know Him and love Him. Not know about Him, not worship an idea, but worship a person. And some of you are not following Christ, but you think you are. You may be religious, you may be follow Christianity, you go to church, you're here at Impact, you're checking off a list, but you don't know the God that you claim to follow. And this morning... We do this sometimes at Impact Church. We probably should do it more, but I want to pray with you if you're here struggling and thinking, this is plastic to me. Even, even my idea of Jesus is detached. I don't know Him. It would be an honor for me if I could lead you in a prayer to just give your life to Christ. And, and I want to be very careful here because there's no such thing as a magic prayer. There's no prayer that saves you. I'm just helping you talk to God if that's awkward for you. 
Maybe you've talked around it, but maybe you've never really talked to Him. Maybe you've never surrendered. And today, as we, as you come to a church that's really not even launched yet, and a launch team filled with people that work very hard and are committed and dedicated for a different kind of church, and you want to join in, but even some of these people look foreign to you because what they're doing seems so deep and so dedicated, and you think, it's just church. Why is it different here? Maybe that you don't know Jesus. If you want to know why people can stack chairs and put up drapes and do things like this early in the morning at a stinky old middle school gym and be excited about it, it's because of the one that lives in them. It's because of the one whose name they're lifting up. And you say, I can't even get excited or thrilled if everything's going my way. If life's comfortable, I have money, I'm not sick, I'm not even happy then. I want what they have. Well, Jesus died and shed His innocent blood on the cross to pave the way to make that possible so that you could. You can't do anything, but you can reach out and accept the free gift. If you're ready to do that, pray with me. Just pray silently in your heart after me, and don't talk to me. Talk to God as you pray. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for stiff-arming you my whole life, for learning about you but never embracing you. Lord, I bring my baggage of my past before you, and I trade it, I exchange it. Take it, Lord, and give me your free gift of salvation because I'm trusting you, Lord, not just believing but trusting and yielding to you. I ask you willingly to come into my heart and into my life and transform me. And I believe that you have. Thank you for saving me, Lord Jesus. Now make me like so many that I see at impact. Give me that joy and change my path. Lord, transform me from a Twitter follower, Lord, to a fully devoted follower of you from this day forward. For it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that and you really meant it, please, please talk to me after the service, but also indicate that on that card. We're about to have our time of giving back to God. We're going to close with our offering. And I want you to check off on that card or write on that card that you committed your life to Christ. Because we have a gift for you and we have some things to help you on your first steps as a journey. You're what's called a, a baby Christian right now. You've been born again, and you're, you're brand spanking new, and so there's some steps you need to take because Satan's going to want to derail you. First thing Satan wants to do for everybody is make sure you never come to Christ. But if you do, he's not done with you. Second thing he wants to do is make your life ineffective so you don't tell others. Don't let him do that. Let us help bring you along and help you get involved with others and really grow in him. So check that off and then put it in the offering basket as it comes by. Uh, by the way, if you're a first-time guest with us or even a second-time guest, we've got a gift for you. Um, we want to know that you are here, and we want you to have what we have for you, too. So if you go to the Red Tent, the Welcome Center, after the service is over, just tell them that you're a first- or second-time guest, and we've got a gift for you, and we want you to have that and make sure you don't miss it. Otherwise, I'm taking it home because they're pretty cool gifts. Would you stand with me? Gang, the last couple of weeks with the temptations of Christ, and then this week and definitely next week as a continuation of this, a foundation is being built for the rest of Luke. <clears throat> and what you're going to see now is that as Jesus goes forward in his ministry, you're going to see crowds surge to follow him when they hear and receive what they want, whether that be healings or different kinds of miracles and, or entertainment, um, teaching that makes them feel good, 
or people that surge and follow him because he just gives the truth and they want their life truly healed. And you're going to see this back and forth battle. And I wanted you to see that real clearly on the front end because we'll do the same thing. We'll hear this teaching on Luke and we'll start to pick out what we want from it. And we'll start to tailor make religion from it. People do it all the time. They even do it today from something that's already happened. I want to make sure we don't do this. You follow the wrong trail and you're just going to be religious. You're just going to be someone who has an external religion and really doesn't know him. Follow him and his truth even when it's hard. Take up your cross daily and he'll give you that joy that doesn't matter what you have. You could be rich and comfortable and have abundance of things and you'll be joyful. Or you could be in prison for serving the Lord and you'll be joyful. And it's that kind of constant joy that cannot be taken away from you that you want. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth today. Lord, thank you that this is a church that's being built and filled with people that want to know the real you, Lord. It's a plastic Jesus that's being preached all across this land, Lord, and it's easy to receive. It's easy to believe. It's easy to want, but it's not true, Lord. Father, we're not supposed to make heaven earth or earth heaven. One day, all the glorious things and all the things that we want for every tear to go away and no more pain and and joy and laughing and singing and worship of you is going to come. But heaven is heaven. And in your presence is heaven. Until we get there, we have a job to do. And Lord, that includes painful times and difficult times and even times when serving you makes our friends and family shun us. God, teach us to be bold and to be strong, Lord. Teach us when we are confronted, are you a follower of Christ, that unlike Peter, we would boldly say, I am, come what may. And what may come in this country may start getting worse pretty quick. But make us be a beacon of light. And Lord, let us be a church that does what you left us on earth to do, to reach others for you. For your glory and honor we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week for part two.